0: Lord God, we ask this evening that as your word is read and especially as your word is proclaimed, that we would feed upon Christ and that you would strengthen your people, you would equip us, and we would be those that are conformed into the likeness of our Savior and that you would be with us. We ask all these things in the wonderful Powerful and strong name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you tonight. if you have a uh, if you could turn please to uh, John chapter five and the Bible in front of you that'll you'll find that on page eight hundred and ninety. as John chapter five I'm going to be reading from verse thirty. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The very works that I am doing, bearing witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His word you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. How will you believe my words? This is God's Word. Well, do keep your Bibles
1: open at that passage. Uh, Last Sunday evening, we came and looked at the whole section as one global picture. This evening, I want to look more closely at some words that Jesus says and which have relevance to our understanding of why it is when we come to church we even open our Bibles at all. I remind you of the context. The context is that it's the Sabbath day. Jesus has been healing on the Sabbath. And instead of people clapping for joy, the Pharisees got themselves into a frenzy of hatred for Jesus. Back in chapter 5, verse 17 and 16 and 17, they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You think he was playing football or watching television or doing something really bad like that. Instead, he's been healing people, but they're, they're really seriously ticked off with him. And Jesus answers them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. And verse 18, they understand what's going on, but they're still seeking to kill him because he's breaking the Sabbath, charge number one, and he's making himself equal with God, charge number two, far more serious. And how does Jesus respond to that? Well, He responds by marshaling witnesses to His claims. And He begins with a human witness, John the Baptist. Uh, He says that John was a burning and shining light. He was pointing somewhere else. He was not the light. He was merely pointing to the light. Secondly, He produces an empirical witness. Verse 34, He says the crucial testimony was not so much human but divine. that the works, verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, that you see me doing, all these healings, miracles, that I'm doing every day, all the day, as thousands of people come with their ailments to me, and I'm spending all my energy doing these things, you see it paraded before your eyes. And these very works, he says, that I'm doing, bear witness about me. They're signposts. They're not merely wonder workings. Rather, they are pointing beyond the miracle to this heavenly reality. And Jesus, by the miracles He performs, and supremely by His death and resurrection, His greatest work and witness points to God's being with them. But interestingly, of all of these witnesses that Jesus produces, the miracles ministry of John the Baptist, the greatest miracle of all, or the greatest witness of all, is a divine witness that is found in the Scripture. And that's why I wanted to come back to this passage, because I kind of glided over that last week, and I knew that somebody would be dissatisfied and write in and say, you skipped that. Well, I skipped it deliberately, because I knew it would take up a whole evening just by itself. And so I want to look at that this evening, and I want to talk about how we understand the use of Scripture, the place of Scripture. And I have several things that I want to talk about from this text and indeed from Jesus' interaction with people throughout His ministry. And the first thing has to do with the origin and authority of Scripture. The origin and authority of Scripture. Let's look at this passage in verses 37, 38, and then going back to 34. He says, Scripture is the Father's witness, verse 37. It is his Father's word, verse 38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness, and you do do not have his word in you. And he goes on to add, or he adds earlier, verse 34, this witness is not from man. That is, it's not a human witness. It is a divine witness. So what is he underlining? He's underlining that the origin of the Scripture, scriptural witness to him, is divine in its origin and divine in its authority. And he produces that as the greatest testimony to himself. Now you may think to yourself, isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that Jesus does not set more store on the miracles that he performs? that that he brings them back to the Bible, in a sense, and says, what the Bible says about me is far more remarkable and compelling than these miracles you see me working. Isn't that an amazing thing? Because, you see, for us, it would be the other way around. For us, it would be the things like uh, that are more immediate, aren't they? Visions, voices, or direct actions. They, They do seem far more convincing far more personal, far more direct. But the reality, of course, is that visions and voices and and miracles can be contrived or they can be counterfeited. They can be imagined. And even if you do get authentic visions and hear authentic voices, and if you are hearing voices, I suggest perhaps a doctor's visit would be good for you. But visions and voices and miracles and so on, the memories of these things fade. They, they fade with time. And when you get to my age, you can't remember anything at all about anything like that you might ever have heard. So, so that's the way you're going. And some of you will get there sooner than, than I have. But here's the thing. Written words don't change. They don't go away. Generation comes, generations go generation after generation after generation, thousands of years now, we've got the same Scriptures Jesus had in our hands this evening. Isn't that amazing? Because words don't change. And Jesus says that the real authority behind Him is the Word of God. It's better than signs and wonders. The Apostle Peter said the same thing in, in his second letter, Second Peter chapter one when uh, he's describing the fact that he was there when Jesus was transfigured you remember Jesus was transfigured the inner glory of God shone through the curtain of his humanity and they saw this brilliance this splendor of the glory of God shining through the person of the Lord Jesus and Peter writes there in second peter 1 and he says you know we were eyewitnesses of his majesty we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were, th- we were there, uh, myself and two others. We were there on the mountain with Jesus. We were, we were there. We got the t-shirt. You know, I was with Jesus on the mountain, and so I'm transfigured. That one was a very, very long kind of insignia on the t-shirt. But he, they were there, and they saw that. And that was remarkable. Not only that, but they heard a voice. They actually heard a voice from heaven, and they heard what the voice said. This is what he goes on to say we heard the voice born to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Unquote. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Well, that's remarkable, Peter. Let's, let's put on a tour and you can go around the country telling people how you were there and saw it. How you were there and heard it. The vision, the voice, you saw the reality of the transfiguration. You heard the voice from the majestic glory. But listen to him. He goes on to say this. But we have something more sure. We have something more sure. What do you mean more sure than having been there? and seen it, been there, and heard it. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, and you would do well to pay attention to it," he goes on to say, because holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they produced the Scripture. So this is an important thing for us to grasp, that Jesus emphasizes the origin and authority Of Scripture over everything else, including visions and voices and miracles, absolutely clear that the Scripture is far more powerful than what the eyewitnesses and ear witnesses saw and heard. Now, of course, the people he's talking to, the religious leaders that he's addressing, would have affirmed that God is the author of Scripture. But in practice, they and others who followed them, did not believe in the final authority of Scripture. In fact, Jesus had two controversies with the religious leaders about the Bible. In chapter 15 of Matthew, He addresses the issue of authority, and He underlines the fact that Scripture is God's Word written. He underlines to them there in Matthew 15 that the Scripture does not share its preeminence with anybody else over the lives of God's people. It is preeminent above human tradition, every tradition authorized by the church. It does not share its glory with human tradition or human experience or human scholarship or human reason. Scripture overrides them all. In short, the church's authority lies in the Bible plus nothing. It's the Bible alone that is the Word of God alone. Jesus' answer to these Pharisees in Matthew 15 is absolutely resounding. Scripture is God's Word written. It stands above all earthly authorities. In Matthew 15, he describes the Scripture as the command of God and he contrasts it with the traditions of men. He says, the traditions of men want to diminish the authority of the Word of God. How how does this happen? At the time of the Reformation, there was a kind of counter-reformation, around about 1546. They had a council of Trent, and there, at that council, it was resolved that the Word of God, the Scripture— was absolutely without error in all its parts, had authority in every respect, but that along with the authority of Scripture, there was the authority of the church, the tradition of the church. And once that principle was enshrined in law, church law, at the Council of Trent, there was an explosion of new doctrines the veneration of Mary became authorized. Mary's immaculate conception, just in the 19th century. Mary's assumption into heaven. Mary's becoming the mediatrix, that is, the feminine mediator between God and man, or between Jesus and man. You want Jesus here go to him through his mother. All of these things are without any biblical warrant whatsoever, but they have been accepted as authoritative alongside the Bible. The late 19th and early 20th century, and I'm afraid reviving again now in the 21st, is theological liberalism. And theological liberalism doesn't put the Bible and tradition on the same level, but the Bible and reason on the same level. And once you put anything in the same level, it's not long before you're finding that there are some things in the Bible that don't accord with reason. And rather than letting Scripture critique reason, reason begins to critique Scripture. And so there are bits that are believable and bits that are not. Bits that are defensible and bits that are not. Bits that are credible and bits that are not. And soon the Bible is subject to reason. That doesn't mean there's no place for either tradition or reason. But they're subservient to the authority of the Bible. That's what Jesus argues in Matthew 15. So he underlines then the origin of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And not only does he do that in general, but he does it particularly. He does it, for example, when he affirms the authority of the Old Testament. Whatever he handles, the only Scriptures Jesus had in his lifetime, which were the Old Testament, he gave His reverent assent to the authority of the Scripture. John 10:35. Scripture cannot be broken, He said. Or in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is kind of shorthand for all the Scripture. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, no part of the written Scripture will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So he had reverent submission and assent to the authority of the Bible. He even sees his own mission. Why is he here? He does it from Scripture. He is the son of Adam. He is the son of man. He is the suffering servant of the Lord. In his own personal life, he accepted the moral demands of Scripture. He voluntarily subordinated himself to the authority of God's law. He kept the law of God. He thought the law of God a delight. He thought the law of God good. He was perfect. And whenever confronted by the attacks of the evil one, how does he resist the devil? He says to the devil, it stands written, you shall not. God's word trumps everything. It overwhelms everything. And when it came to his controversies with religious leaders, where does he go for his authority? He goes to the Scripture. The Pharisees, he charged, had made the Word of God of no effect by adding to it the traditions of men. The Sadducees, they were in error because they were subtracting from the Scripture the supernatural elements because they didn't want that. Because reason prevailed. He never contradicted Scripture. That is the Old Testament. And even where in the Sermon on the Mount, he introduces those antitheses. You know those those places where he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say. He's not handling Scripture, but the traditions of men that had accumulated around Scripture. It's a simple fact. That if somebody says they follow Jesus, they better follow Jesus in His submission to the authority of the Old Testament as God's Word written, a divine Word. Not only that, but He affirmed the authority of the New Testament. When Jesus told the, chose the twelve, for example, He named them apostles, the sent ones. Now, interestingly, that was in the Hebrew a word uh, used over and over again in the Old Testament, or we should call it the Hebrew Scriptures, a word used over and over again there for the idea of God sending prophets to Israel. That word, you know, I will send my servants the prophets, you'll find it over and over again. It's disguised in English translation, but it's it's actually throughout all of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so, whenever Jesus calls them apostles… he's He's using Greek language. He would have used Aramaic or Hebrew. In the Aramaic and Hebrew, he would have used the words that were normally used for God sending the prophets. In other words, he was calling the apostles to be with him. And for three years, that's the words he used, he chose these men to be with him. For three years, they were with him, day and night. Every day he was talking all the time. I mean, I'm sure Jesus stopped talking, but but they were listening to absolutely everything He said. They were with Him. They were watching Him. They were observing Him. They were hearing Him. And they were eyewitnesses of His purity, His humility, His majesty. He gave them power, power to do what only He did. So that after He was resurrected and taken up to heaven, the people who saw the apostles doing their miracles said, nobody's ever been able to do what that guy just did there except Jesus of Nazareth. And they took note of the apostles that they had been with Jesus because they were doing what Jesus did. In fact, the phrase came into being that was used again and again, and that is the signs of an apostle. The great powerful miracles that they were doing were unique to them, because they were sent by Jesus. And you can't get any more explicit about Jesus authorizing these apostles than when he said to people on one occasion, he who listens to you listens to me, and he who rejects you rejects me. So that means, this is what that means for me. When I read what Paul says, I'm hearing what Jesus said. When I hear what Peter says, I'm hearing what Jesus says. These apostles have behind them, self consciously, the Lord who sent them into the world. And in the New Testament, the apostles themselves self consciously exercised apostolic authority. They wrote in the name of Christ, not the church. They put themselves on a par with Old Testament prophets. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Both were bearers of the Word of God. And Paul commends churches that received him as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus himself. And they urge that their writings be read alongside Old Testament writings whenever Christian people gathered for public worship. Now, do you notice, as uh, as Jesus sends them out, and Paul is sorry as Paul is writing to the to the Galatians, he commends the Galatians in these words that I've just quoted, Galatians four fourteen. You did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, you might think he would say to them, "What were you thinking? What were you thinking?" Don't you realize that you're, you're, that you're kind of over, overstepping the mark here? No, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them. He encourages them because what they've recognized is that as an apostle of Jesus, what Jesus taught, Paul taught. And what Paul said, Jesus said. So whenever the apostles died out and you go to the first century, you go to one of the church leaders, a man called Ignatius. He was a, a bishop, which just meant senior pastor in those days in Antioch, around the year 110 A.D. He wrote letters to the Romans, the Ephesians, and the Trallians and others. And several times in those letters, he writes this, I do not, like Peter or Paul, issue you with commands, for I am not apostle. In other words, here is a church leader, a bishop, a senior pastor, and he's distinguishing between an apostle and a pastor. Apostles get what they say into the Bible. Pastors get what they say out of the Bible. That's the difference. So we believe in the authority of Scripture because of Christ. He endorsed the Old Testament, and He made provision for the writing. Of the New Testament. There's that beautiful, beautiful passage. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the Bible really is John 13 through 17. Uh, if I have one section that I go back to again and again, uh, to mine for gems, that's the section. And in that, in that section, Jesus has taken the apostles apart from the world. He's brought them to Himself on their own. Judas is dismissed. He says to the apostles, I've got so much that I want to tell you. But the clock is ticking. They're going to come and arrest me soon. Tomorrow I'm going to die. I don't have time to tell you all the things that I want to tell you. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Now, notice the you there is not you or me. It's them. It's the people he's talking to in that room when he says, I don't have time to tell you what I'd like to tell you. I'm going to believe in you soon. Jesus doesn't say that to you and me because He's in heaven. He's talking to them, and it's to them He gives the promise. The Holy Spirit will come to you. And when He comes to you, He'll do three things. He'll remind you of everything that I've said. He will supplement what I've said by leading you into all truth. And He will tell you things to come, And when he's winding up that whole evening in John 17 with a prayer at the end of that teaching section, he prays for himself. He prays for these men, these apostles. And then he prays for us. And he prays for all those who will believe in him through their message. Get it? Jesus is authorizing the New Testament. So there's the original authority of Scripture. Secondly, the function and goal of Scripture. The function and goal of Scripture. This is more like a lecture than a sermon. But you wanted something different and refreshing. So that's, that's okay. The second point of confrontation or, or controversy had to do with the function and goal. Why was Scripture given to the people of God? In John 5, we're taken a bit deeper in our understanding of the issue of Scripture. What is the purpose of Scripture? Verses 37 to 39. He calls the Scripture the Father's witness and word. Verse 39, it is they that bear witness to me. Later on, verse 46, if you believed Moses, those are the first five books of the Old Testament. If you believed Moses, you would believe Moses me because he wrote of me." So, here's Jesus saying, when he started his ministry, for example, and went into that synagogue in Nazareth, and the leader of the synagogue handed him a scroll. The scroll was of Isaiah the prophet. He opened the scroll, and he read the Scripture. And having read the Scripture, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back. the synagogue leader and said to the crowd, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture. In other words, if you want to know what Isaiah is about, it's about me. It's about me. You remember after his resurrection, those disciples, two disciples on their way, it may have been a man and a woman, on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And a stranger joins them and they get into this discussion. And then we're told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on, that very day, He appears to others and he says to them, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Now you take all that together and what's it saying to you? It's saying the Bible has one subject, and it's Jesus. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers His name. it's true. The Scriptures bear witness to the person of Christ. From the very beginning, from that promise, you remember to Adam and Eve about a seed, an offspring of the woman. Oh, there's something flagged up right at the very beginning, a male offspring of the woman. That's going to be important in the outworking of this story. And so you have Jacob identifying Judah and saying, Judah, from your tribe and clan will come the royal leader that will attract the nations and bring them together. And so it goes on, David. David talks about one who's going to sit on his throne and who's going to rule forever and to whom whom God will say, to him my God. This this person, this royal person with divine authority is Isaiah the prophet saying that there's going to be this divine being, this this king who will have divine honors and divine titles, who will also be a suffering servant. Well, the Scriptures bear witness to his person, and the Scripture bears witness to his work. Now, you have Abraham taking his son up the hill. You remember to kill him, Isaac. And as they go up that hill, I don't know whether Abraham's cool, came and di- collected, I wouldn't have been cool, came and di- di- collected, as I'm climbing that hill to kill my son in obedience to the command of God, but he's doing it in obedience. And when eventually Isaac, who's about 18 years of age and probably able to overpower Abraham, by the way, says to his dad, Dad, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham says to him, God will provide a lamb, my son. And you know the story as he's about to kill him. He hears the bleating of the lamb. And the Apostle Paul comments on that in Romans 8 and says, God did not spare His only Son. He spared Abraham's son, but He did not spare His only Son. And soon that lamb, you see, makes another reappearance at the Passover when the angel of death is coming, and the promise goes out to all Egypt, to all Egypt, not just to the Jews, to every household in Egypt, kill the lamb. Sprinkle its blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Get your kids in there, and you'll be safe. And we know that many Egyptians and others living there believed that, did that, and were spared. It was a wide, precious promise of God. And Then you come to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant of the Lord is like a lamb to the slaughter. In other words, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, throughout the Bible, there is this consistent message that Jesus' work is a work in which He will bear sin. Psalm 22 even says that He'll be crucified in His hands and His feet hundreds of years before crucifixions even invented. Jesus tells His contemporaries how privileged they were in Matthew 13, "'Blessed are your eyes.'" For they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. So, what is the function and purpose of Scripture? The function and goal of Scripture is to lead us to Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus talks about the use and misuse of Scripture. Come to these Pharisees, and He says to them, you search the Scriptures. Well, That was their job. They did that all the time. They were studying the Bible. They counted the number of words, the number of letters in every book of the Bible. I thought that might be something I could do and share that calculation with you Sunday by Sunday. You'd be bored to tears. But that's what they did. They accumulated data about the Bible. They thought that was something pleasing to God and good for their own souls. Well, Jesus talks to them here in in John 5 about the misuse of Scripture. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And it's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You're misusing the Scripture. And again, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. They thought just reading the Bible was earning brownie points. They thought just memorizing the Bible earned them brownie points. They read the Bible to feel good about themselves. But they weren't coming to Jesus. And so he emphasizes the proper use of Scripture. John does in his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The Apostle Paul brings together the sacred writings of the apostles and The Scriptures, he brings them all together, and he says, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is meant to bring you to Him. History, the narrative, the story, is meant to bring you to Him. What's Joseph all about, the story of Joseph? He's not just there to tell you how to live, and as an example, so that you may feel smug and self-righteous. Joseph was rejected by his own people, tempted by the tempter, imprisoned, misunderstood, rejected, and then eventually exalted, just as Jesus was. The law. Oh, yes, the law has a part to play in how we live as believers, but But the law is first of all meant to strip us of all our pretensions of righteousness. To strip us. The law is held up like a mirror to our face to show us you haven't shaved. You've got a six o'clock shadow here. You should have done that before you came out. You've you've got cake all over you or whatever it is. The, The law is a mirror that shows us what our need is and our need is of cleansing and pardon. proper use of the Gospels. What are the Gospels there for? Well, the Gospels show us, yes, how to live. And we go back to the Gospels, and and we can learn from what Jesus did in our everyday lives. But what is the primary purpose of the Gospels? It's to show us how Jesus lived. It's to show us why it is that we stand before God today, not just with our sins, pardoned, but we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. How righteous was Jesus? More than I am, more than you are, more than any other human being could be. He is all righteousness. The Gospels are there to show us that He is the perfect Savior. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect Adam. You notice what He says to these people. He says to them, you refuse to copy me so that you may have life. No, he doesn't. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Dr. Boyce uh, wrote a Christmas book, and in that book, he talked about the people who who missed Christmas. And he talks about the religious leaders. You remember the story, the wise men come to Jerusalem. Herod inquires of the theologians, and they immediately get out their Bibles, and they give the right answer. Oh, yeah. Where's the Messiah to be born? Well, Bethlehem. Tell them to go to Bethlehem. And it was on the word of the theologians to the king that the wise men went to Bethlehem and found Jesus. But these these theologians, they didn't go to Jesus. Herod didn't go to Jesus. They didn't leave their homes or their theological offices or the palace to investigate the Savior's arrival. They didn't go to Jesus, and so they didn't find life. But those wise men went to Jesus, and they worshiped Him. And the shepherds, the lowest form of life on the social ladder in the Middle East, they found their way to Jesus. And some poor saintly people, elderly people like Simeon and Anna, who would have been discounted either by Virtue of their social position or their age, and have been dismissed, they saw Jesus. You think, says Jesus, you think that life can be found just in reading the text, but you refuse to come to me. We use Scripture correctly when we look in the direction towards which they point. And they point us remorselessly, irresistibly to Jesus. Tonight, we're going to sit in a moment around this table. This table has its significance from this word that we have just preached. The word now becomes a visible sign. And as bread gets placed into your hands, as the cup is taken up, by your hands, God is saying to you, Hear my word. Let my word inform this action. Jesus is here by the Holy Spirit. He is here to feed you, to cleanse you, to restore you, to renew you. That's what he does. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight you'd give us a firmer, clearer Understanding of the authority and origin of Scripture, the purpose and goal of Scripture to bring us to Jesus, the proper use of Scripture, that in seeing Him we come to Him in order that we might have life. As we take bread and wine, may we take Him who is represented by the bread and wine, take Him to be our own, our very own, own, our own dear Jesus our own Savior, we pray. Amen.